Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Thank you, John and Bethany, for filling in this morning. Love those hymns. We didn't discuss the music, but it perfectly dovetails with the message, so thank you. Luke chapter 24. We, this is the penultimate sermon out of Luke, which means we'll finish next week. That's what penultimate means. Finally, I promise. Um, we're considering today more proof of the resurrection. We're familiar from just law that when a prosecuting attorney is making their case, they have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the suspect is guilty of the crime with which they have been charged. And to do that, they have to provide convincing evidence. And so as they proceed through the case, they stack evidence upon evidence upon evidence that hopefully will prove their point that the suspect is guilty. Their goal is to be convincing beyond a reasonable doubt. The Gospel writers of the New Testament are telling us the story of what has happened to Jesus. They are narrating the Gospel. The word Gospel means good news. And the good news they are telling us about is how God saves sinners from His judgment. He saves sinners from their sins, which deserve death. He did that. He saves sinners. This is the essence of the good news, is that God saves sinners by sending His Son the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jesus saved sinners by dying on the cross for their sins and then by rising from the dead. Those two things go together. They must go together. And so the gospel writers are telling us how it happened. They're telling us the story. They're giving us the, the nuts and bolts, the details of what's happening. But as they come to Jesus' resurrection, we're now in chapter 24 where Jesus has been raised from the dead. As they're telling the story of the resurrection, they are not simply telling they're not simply telling the story. They are laying proof after proof after proof that Jesus was actually raised from the dead. Now again, from the vantage point of any normal person, people don't rise from the dead. Resurrection is not only improbable, it is impossible. How many people have you seen rise from the dead? I've been to a number of funerals now. I've officiated a number of funerals. And the thing that has stayed true at every single one of them is that when we are done with the funeral service, the person who was deceased when they were brought into the church or into the funeral home remained deceased and and were buried into the ground. we, We just don't see this happen. People just don't rise from the dead. But Jesus actually did rise from the dead. And so Luke and the other gospel writers are showing us how we can believe that. They are stacking evidence upon evidence upon evidence as they tell the story of Christ's resurrection to prove to us, to convince us that Jesus was actually raised from the dead. That what we're reading here is not a fairy tale. It is not a fantasy story. It is real history. This really happened. This was a real event. And so in our passage this morning, as we consider Luke's account of Jesus' resurrection here, we see more proof. Proof upon proof, evidence upon evidence, stacking up that evidence to establish the fact that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. 
And in doing so, this proof calls us as the followers of Jesus Christ to a greater and deeper faith in the Christ who has been raised from the dead. Now, I know this morning we're preaching to the church, right? Most of us are believers. Most of us have put our faith and trust in Christ. This is a non-negotiable fact for us. We admit it. We've, we've had to admit this. We have to believe this in order to believe in the gospel. But this reality of the resurrection is so essential to building our faith. It is not simply the foundation that we stand on doctrinally. It's the foundation that we stand on practically. That the resurrection of Jesus makes a difference in how we live our lives. And so as we go through this, I'm hoping this will be a faith-building exercise that as you hear more today about being certain of Jesus' resurrection, that you are indeed emboldened in your faith, that you know that you're standing on a firm foundation, that this is making a difference in how you walk out the Christian life. We're going to look today at verses 30. We're in um, Luke chapter 24. We're going to look at verses 36 to 49. So if you have... Your copy of God's Word open, you can follow along as I read from the English Standard Version. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day be rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. But this morning I want to look at this passage. I want to look at it in three parts. I think that we see here three proofs that affirm for us once again that Jesus has indeed been raised from the dead. First, his personal appearance to the disciples in verses 36 to 43. Secondly, the testimony of Scripture in verses 44 to 47. And then third, the ongoing mission of Jesus through his disciples in verses 46 to 49. Just to kind of warn you ahead of time, point one is by far the longest of the three points. Okay, Two and three will be a little shorter. In fact, we'll circle back around to them in part next week with some different emphases. But I want to go through uh, these three aspects this morning. So the first proof of the resurrection is that Jesus personally appeared to his disciples. Jesus personally appeared to his disciples. This personal appearance proves that he was raised from the dead. And I think there are three ways that we can see this in this passage. We can see that just first in his mere presence to the disciples. Just showing up and appearing before them. His mere presence among them is proof that he was actually there with them proving his resurrection. Secondly, we see his corporeal body, his body, his living body, as proof of the resurrection. And third, his appetite for food in verses 41 to 43. Let's think first about the the mere presence of Jesus. The mere presence of Jesus before his disciples proves his resurrection. Now, this happens, at least verses 36 to 43, happened at at one moment, at one meeting, 
Jesus has appeared to his disciples as the disciples, the 11 disciples, are meeting with those, uh, those two disciples from Emmaus. We talked about that last week at length. That was the, the topic of last week's sermon, verses 13 to 35. There were these two disciples uh, from, Emmaus, uh, from Emmaus who were in Jerusalem to witness the Passover. They were there to celebrate the Passover, and they were on their way back home. And there the stranger appears to them and, and convinces them from the Scripture that the Messiah needed to die and be raised from the dead. They were heartbroken about that because they believed that this person, this Jesus that they were trusting in to be God's Messiah, who was going to redeem them, had been crucified. And certainly that, that didn't mean he was the Messiah, but Jesus convinces them from the Scriptures. And so when they, when they finally get to Emmaus and come to sit down at the table to eat their meal... That these two disciples who, who didn't recognize this stranger, they've been providentially hindered from seeing who he really was. As they broke bread together, they recognized that this stranger was Jesus. And when Jesus vanished from their midst, they, they ran back to Jerusalem, the seven-mile journey late at night, didn't matter. They ran back to the, to the disciples in Jerusalem and told them what had happened. And so it's in the context of this sort of this late night meeting, the 11 disciples, these two disciples from Emmaus, sharing stories, sharing the, the, the joy that Jesus had indeed been raised from the dead, that he had, he had appeared personally to these two disciples from Emmaus. Now Jesus shows up, suddenly and unexpectedly it seems, in verse 36. Notice that this is indeed the same Jesus. In verse 36 it says that Jesus himself, this, the word himself in Greek really emphasizes that this is really Jesus, the same Jesus whom they knew during his earthly ministry. These were his disciples. They spent time with him. They were with him. This was the same Jesus that they saw witness die on the cross. It's the same Jesus now appearing to them in his glorified resurrection state. When Jesus comes into the room when he appears before them, he is not just simply on the outer margins of the room. He's not hanging out on the walls. He's not, you know, he's not the introvert kind of slinking away, trying not to be noticed. Jesus is right there in the middle of them. The word, the phrase there, among them, in Greek, literally means he's right there in the middle of them. He immediately draws their attention. He's not merely present, but he's quite obviously noticed. Now, a question that sometimes comes up when we're thinking about this passage is how did Jesus make such an, instantly make such a noticeable entrance into the room? Especially when we consider John chapter 20, which appears to be the parallel to this passage. It indicates that the disciples were meeting behind locked doors. They locked the doors because they feared the Jews. They feared the Jewish leaders coming and apprehending them as followers of Jesus. So if the disciples are huddled together behind locked doors, how did Jesus enter the room? Well, it's possible that Jesus miraculously unlocked the doors, much like the angel does for Peter in Acts chapter 12. I don't have time to go through that passage. But you can go see Peter was in prison and an angel appears to him and miraculously unlocks the doors for him so he can go back and meet up with the disciples. That could have happened something similar to that. But it's also possible that Jesus enters the room in an unconventional way, not possible by the ordinary human body. We said last week in verse 31 that when Jesus was with the two Emmaus disciples, that he vanished from them. They were about to eat, they recognized him, and Jesus immediately vanished. And now in verse 36, Jesus suddenly and instantly appears before the disciples as they're meeting behind these locked doors. Some have suggested that Jesus' resurrection body is able to pass through walls in ways that our ordinary bodies cannot. Others would indicate that Jesus' resurrection body allows him to disappear and then reappear at will. It's unclear how Jesus appeared to the disciples. 
But I think something that we can definitively say is that Jesus' resurrection body allows him to do certain things that his pre-resurrection body could not do. And there's a whole thing. We could travel a whole trail down 1 Corinthians 15 to talk about how the resurrection body is different from the the pre-resurrection body, the earthly body that we have in this moment. There is some difference there. We don't exactly know how that works out. We don't exactly know how how that happens. But clearly Jesus is in a resurrection state. There's something different here about his body. And yet he appears to them. And he is present with them. And notice that as he enters the room, as, he, as he's there and he, 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 he's appearing before them, he says to them, peace to you, in verse 36. Now that would be the normal Jewish way of saying, hello, peace, right? Shalom. Hello. It's a traditional Jewish Greeting, But I think Jesus here is offering more than just a simple greeting. His presence here among them is meant to alleviate their trepidation. Notice how the disciples respond to the appearance of Jesus in verse 37. It says that they were startled and frightened. In verse 38, he diagnoses them as troubled. And so Jesus here is preemptively comforting them. He comes in peace. He comes to bring them peace. So his presence here is not meant to startle them. It's not meant to frighten them. It's not meant to trouble them. His presence is meant to reassure them. His presence is meant to comfort them. And when Jesus offers peace, when he says peace to you, he's offering his peace in the fullest possible sense. You see, Jesus' mere presence among his disciples means that there is no need for them to fear. Right? Because by his death and resurrection, Jesus has done everything necessary to bring them safely into God's providential and faithful care. They are cared for by God. They are in God's hands. There is no longer any need to fear anything, even God himself. Because God has, or Jesus has reconciled them to God. They are safe in his care. If God before us, who can be against us? What do, these, what do these disciples need to fear? Not the threats of the Jewish leaders, not the rejection of the Jewish people, not the intimidation of the Roman authorities, not their own sinfulness, not even the power of Satan. There is nothing that can harm them because they are safe in God's care. And the reason why they are safe in God's care is because Christ died for their sins and was raised for the dead, from the dead. Because Jesus is risen, they have real peace. They have ultimate peace. They have peace with God. And the fact that Jesus is right there in their presence, he's not just speaking mere words to them. He is telling them the reality of their spiritual condition. They have peace with God. And because they have peace with God, they now have the peace of God that abides upon them to guard them in this situation, to govern them in every situation. It reminds me of Paul's famous passage in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, that the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's all true. We have peace because Christ was raised from the dead. This is the practical application of Christ's resurrection, one practical application of Christ's resurrection because jesus is raised we have peace his resurrection means that he has conquered everything it's the ultimate conquest 
Jesus has defeated every enemy and broken every power. He has brought us into a right relationship with God that can never be undone. We have peace with God and we have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding because Christ is raised from the dead. So whatever you may be facing in this life at this moment in time, your heart is all stirred up, you're troubled, you're startled, you're frightened because of things that you're experiencing, brothers and sisters, you have peace. Jesus' resurrection means that you have peace. There's nothing, there's no situation that can take you from God's care. What a beautiful, beautiful application of the resurrection. Jesus' mere presence among His disciples is again another layer of confirmation to the validity of the resurrection. This is now the fourth post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. He first appeared to Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20. The disciples, the 11 disciples said in verse 34 that he appeared to Simon. That's not recorded. That encounter is not recorded, but he appeared to Simon. We have the Emmaus disciples in verses 13 to 31 and now to the 11. So we got four appearances. This is not a phantom. This is not a ghost. This is not an apparition. It's not a spirit. This isn't a fantasy or a fairy tale. Jesus has been raised and these post-resurrection appearances lay a solid foundation of proof in the resurrection that can never be shaken. This, of course, is already added to the eyewitness testimony of the empty tomb, right? The women had gone to the empty tomb. Some of the disciples had gone to the tomb and found it empty. This is also added to the announcement of the angels that Christ had been raised from the dead and it was all because Jesus had told them that this would happen. This was necessary for this to happen. And the fact that Jesus appears to the eleven, I think, is even more significant because Jesus is going to entrust his ministry to these eleven. The leadership of the church, the proclamation of the gospel following Pentecost is going to reside with these eleven initially. They now have witnessed the resurrection for themselves. They are bona fide eyewitnesses to the truth that this occurred. As central as the resurrection of Jesus is to the Christian faith, as critical as the resurrection of Jesus is to the Christian faith, we have more than enough credible, verifiable evidence that the resurrection really did happen and that Jesus really is alive. And that ought to give us hope. That ought to give us confidence. That ought to give us assurance that Jesus really was raised from the dead. That ought to build our faith as followers of Jesus. That ought to, to build our faith. It should increase our faith. It should call us to a deeper commitment to Christ. A greater degree of faithfulness. We can follow Christ no matter what. Because our trust is unshakable. For we know that Christ was raised from the dead. How could the apostles do what they did? How could they face what they faced as we see in the book of Revelation, or the book of Acts? How can we see the testimony of Christians throughout church history? suffering all kinds of persecution, suffering martyrdom for the faith because they knew this was true. This really did happen. And so that, again, should give us peace that no matter what we might be suffering or what difficulty we might face in Christ's name, that our hope and our destiny rest secure in the one who conquered death and who lives and reigns forevermore.
So just the mere presence of Jesus to his disciples is proof that he has been raised from the dead. But in addition to that, we see that the physical corporeal body of Jesus also proves his resurrection. Again, look at how the disciples react to the presence of Jesus in their midst in verses 37 and 38. It says, Luke says they were startled and frightened. They were panicked. They were terrified. Verse 38 says that they were troubled. They were stirred up. Jesus says, why do doubts arise in your heart? So there's, there's some level of doubting here that's going on. I mean, they, when they heard the news that Jesus was alive, they rejoiced. But now that Jesus is in their presence, it's, it's scaring them a little bit. It's terrifying them. His presence had, was sudden and unexpected. And so these things haven't yet sort of come together in their mind, the reality that Jesus is alive, and, and now that he's right there in their presence. And so they're afraid and they're uncertain. Certainly they acknowledge that he was alive, but in his presence just there confirmed that. But then it says in verse 37 that they thought he was a spirit, a disembodied spirit. He was an apparition. He was a, a phantom. He was a ghost. And that, you know, that wigged them out, right? If I'm going to show my age here, but if you've ever been a fan of Scooby-Doo, the, the, the cartoon Scooby-Doo, right? Whenever Shaggy and Scooby encounter the, you know, the mysterious phantom, right? The boogeyman, you know, how scared they are. You know, they're trying to run. Their feet are kind of moving, but they can't go anywhere. They're panicked and they're screaming and everything. They're terrified. That's kind of what the disciples are in this moment. They see this, they assume as a spirit. Now, Jesus addresses their fears and the fact that they're interpreting his presence as a spirit. Now, how does he do that? Verse 38, he first sort of challenges them that their fears and their doubts are irrational, right? Verse 38, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Why, why are you thinking this? Why are you all worked up? Why, why are you stirred up? It's irrational. In other words, I think Jesus is kind of calling them here to remember. You, you, you've, you've heard about the empty tomb. Some of you have actually seen the empty tomb. A few of them, the disciples from Emmaus, for instance, they had seen Jesus alive in the flesh. The rest of them had heard about the reports. Peter had, had seen Jesus and had told the eleven that he had seen Jesus. They've heard the explanation that Jesus is alive because the angels told them that, that, that God had raised him from the dead. And once the news kind of came together to begin to process this and how Jesus had foretold this, it says that they, that, 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 that they, that they rejoiced, realizing that this news was true. Now, now Jesus shows up and he says, peace to you. Again, bringing peace and reassurance. He's, he's coming on friendly terms. He's announcing the, the very practical benefit of his resurrection to them, that, that they have peace. So there's no reason to, to fear or to doubt. And secondly, Jesus addresses the issue here that they, they interpret his presence as a spirit. And Jesus offers his body to prove that he is not a spirit, that he is a, a living corporeal, real body raised from the dead. Notice what he says to them in verse 38, 39. See, touch my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So he offers them his body. He exhorts them to see with their eyes his hands and his feet that are marked by the scars of his crucifixion. Right? Those scars of crucifixion are the evidences that this is the same Jesus they saw die. They witnessed on Friday Jesus 
hanging from the cross. How do we know that this person in our midst is really that Jesus? Look at the, the scars in his hands and his feet that testify that this is Jesus. Notice that Jesus uses the word myself in verse um, 39. Again, an emphatic way to show the consistency. The Jesus they knew, the Jesus they followed, the Jesus that they ate with, the Jesus that they walked with, the Jesus that they, had, that they heard him teach, they saw his miracles, the one they saw die on the cross, it's the very same one in bodily form. This is really Jesus. He's exhorting them to believe that it's him. And then he says, not just see, but he says touch. He exhorts them to touch him, to handle him with their hands. He wants them to see that he has flesh and bone like a real body has. If Jesus were a mere spirit, he wouldn't have flesh and bones. But Jesus has flesh and bones. They can touch it. They can verify it. He's really alive. The disciples must have taken Jesus up on his offer because John reports in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, a reference there to Jesus. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship was with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. They touched him. So Jesus is not just present among his disciples. He's not just spiritually present among them, but he was bodily present among the disciples. That's important. His body was actually raised from the dead. Again, the same Jesus they knew, the same Jesus they saw witness put to death on the cross. The physical nature of Jesus' body here is also confirmed by his appetite. Notice in verses 41 to 43 that Jesus' appetite for food and the act of eating before his disciples proves his resurrection as well. Verse 41, Jesus asks for something to eat. One of the most fundamental urges, desires of the human body is the urge for food. Who doesn't like to eat, right? It's one of the most basic things that sort of confirms our humanity. The fact that Jesus here has a desire for food is one of the chief indicators that he is alive. So Jesus' resurrection is not merely anatomical. It's not just the structure of the body. It's not just the, hand, the flesh and the bones. But his resurrection is also physiological. His body functions like a living body should. He desires food. He eats the food. His body functions to process the food, to digest the food, to assimilate that nourishment. Now, to satisfy his appetite, we see the disciples offer him a piece of broiled fish, probably something they had eaten earlier that evening. It says that Jesus took the fish and he ate it before them. Again, that word before means right in front of them. They're watching him eat. This is not, again, a magician's trick. This isn't a fantasy. This isn't something that they're just merely perceiving. This is actually happening. And he's eating in front of them, I believe, 
so that they can see that he is really alive. Now, what's interesting is the disciples' response, right? Their initial response is they were startled, they were frightened, they were troubled, right? When he first suddenly and unexpectedly appeared in the room, they were stirred up. But now, the gravity of what they've been experiencing has set in. And it says in verse 41, And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? So what is, their, what is their new reaction to the fact that Jesus is there, that he is there bodily, confirmed by his eating of the food? Well, it says that they were marveling. They were amazed at what they were witnessing. This is somewhat unbelievable. It's the same kind of reaction. The word used here is the same word that Luke uses to indicate the response of the crowds to the miracles of Jesus. Can you imagine seeing the miracles that Jesus is doing, the kind of response, the kind of marveling, the kind of wonderment, the amazement that we would have over that. That's the same kind of reaction. And then Luke says in verse 41 that they disbelieved for joy. They still disbelieved for joy. This is really an odd expression. The word disbelieved here means literally to not believe. And it might indicate that there were still some disciples that doubted the resurrection, despite the evidence of the empty tomb, despite the evidence of the post-resurrection appearances to the women and to Peter, despite the explanation of the angels that Jesus had been raised from the dead. We know, for example, that John 20 would tell us that Thomas was not there this night. And he still did not believe, right? I only I'm going to believe is if I touch him, if I see, if I put my finger in his, in his hands and I put my fist into his side, only then will I believe. We know Matthew chapter 28, verse 17. That they were still, as Jesus is in Galilee now with the disciples, again appearing to them and again exhorting them to the fact that they needed to go into the world and to proclaim the gospel. And there were still at that time some disciples who continued to doubt. They did not believe. And so it's possible that there were still some disciples who were still struggling, still processing, still not reckoning with the fact that Jesus had indeed been raised from the dead. But Luke says that they disbelieved for joy that disbelief and joy occur together. Which again, it seems to be a little bit odd. In fact, there are a couple of translations that translate this phrase, they disbelieved because of joy. In other words, their disbelief is not a doubt, but their disbelief is prompted by joy. It's a, joy, it's a disbelief that's like, this is so amazing, this is unbelievable. I can't believe that Jesus is right here in the room, that he has been raised. Have you ever been so overcome with joy at something that whatever the situation you experienced was just so unbelievable, it's like you couldn't even, I mean, you're just so overwhelmed, you really can't believe it happened. How many of you watched that football game yesterday? I was thinking about that this morning. I was watching it. We had the game on, right? And of course, it's like, can this really happen? This is my, I mean, all week you've been hearing about how great Miami is and how they're supposed to have a better team and FSU's not prepared. They're having a bad season and they're struggling. And yet they're going down. They score that touchdown and there's 20-something seconds left in the game. And Evie's jumping her rope and the Ethernet cord comes out of the modem. It's like, ah, get it back in time. Get the football game right as Miami's got the ball back, right? Time runs out. And it's like you're so overwhelmed for joy. It's like, how can that happen? I'm still in amazement that they won the game yesterday. But I'm excited about it, right? I think that that, I'm, I don't know. I think that's kind of maybe what the disciples are experiencing here. 
Jesus is really raised from the dead. He's really alive. He's really here. We can touch him. It's got a real body. He's eating real food. How can this be? This is so amazing. It's unbelievable. And yet, this disbelief is more of an amazement. Jesus was among them. His presence here really removes all doubt. But it's still hard to believe that this has all happened. And again, we have 2,000, well, we have 2,000 years of history behind us. A lot of us, if you've been converted, you have had a lot of time to think about this and process this. This is still happening. Like, is this in real time? I mean, just two days ago, three days ago, Jesus died on the cross. They saw it. And if you can imagine all the, the, the emotions that are processing, they're going through in that. And now the, Jesus is alive and they're hearing it. And people are talking about it. And now they really see it. It's just absolutely amazing. So Jesus' resurrection here, disbelieving, I think, here is another way of just saying they were just so amazed. This is unbelievable. Like, it's happened. It's true. But I, I can't even believe it. It's like, really happened. And yet Jesus' resurrection here becomes the cornerstone for their faith. And so the record of this event should also build our faith as well. This is the testimony we, we stand on. We have not seen the risen Christ. We don't need to be eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. We have the testimony of those eyewitnesses. And it's, again, not just these 11, but it's evidence upon evidence upon evidence being stacked together. So the first proof of Jesus' resurrection from the dead is his personal appearance to the disciples, verses 36 to 43. Second proof of the resurrection is the testimony from Scripture. Jesus gives his disciples now the context and explanation for understanding the resurrection from Scripture. It's much like the disciples uh, on the road to Emmaus, the two disciples, the two Emmaus disciples, back in chapter 24, verses 25 to 27. Now, we've talked about that in more detail last week, and I would just encourage you to maybe go back and look at that point. If you need to, to think through it, go back and listen to the podcast, to listen to, what, to the uh, sermon on the website. But I always want to point out a couple of things that Jesus says here because there is a little, little bit of a, a, a nuance or a, a added information here that we had not previously considered. But first, before we do that, verse 44, I want to point out three things that I think are important to point out. First, in verse 44, Jesus says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So three things Jesus says here I think are important to note. First, Jesus had already said these things during his earthly ministry. What he is about to tell them is not new for them. These are the same things that Jesus has been telling them. They just now have the context of his, his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. These things make clear the things that he had taught them during his earthly ministry. Secondly, Jesus says that it's the scriptures. Again, in his time, the Bible that they're using, the New Testament is still being, is still being lived out, still being written. So the scriptures are the Old Testament scriptures. Those Old Testament scriptures that were written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born testify about him and his messianic ministry, right? That these things were written already about Jesus in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. The law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms is a Jewish way of referring to the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. It's referring to the Old Testament canon. Jesus is essentially saying here that the entire Old Testament communicated one message. It revealed, it prophesied, it promised, it foretold, it pointed to Christ and to His Messianic ministry. 
Jesus came to redeem Israel. How? Through his death on a cross and his resurrection from the dead. That's the part that they seem to have most difficulty understanding and comprehending at this point. The third thing Jesus says in verse 44 is that the things that Scripture had already written about him in advance, hundreds of years in advance, that those things had to be fulfilled. And Jesus is saying that they have now been fulfilled. Because he died and was raised again, the Scriptures that pointed to him, that prophesied these things, have now come to their fulfillment. Now, Luke Luke doesn't record for us the, the content of what Jesus taught on this occasion. But he does indicate the three main points of emphasis, right? His, in, verse, uh, in verses 46 and 47, his suffering death, his resurrection, and the Great Commission. Again, we saw briefly last week how the Old Testament scriptures were used by the apostles to uh, explain, understand, um, re- reveal how the Old Testament pointed to Christ and his ministry. So I'm not going to go through all that again. But I will say here, there is a little bit of something nuanced here, something, something different, something that he adds that he did not previously say to the Emmaus disciples. And that is that the Scriptures also revealed the necessity of the Great Commission, right? Verse 47. The Scriptures, again, were written about Christ, had to be fulfilled. That includes, verse 47, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That, that is part of the Messiah's ministry. Now, I would at this point point you back to Psalm 67, which we read earlier in the service. I won't read it again now. The idea that the gospel was to go, the, the, the message about the Messiah must be proclaimed through all of the nations, right? Let all the peoples on the earth praise you. Or Isaiah 49, verses 6 and 7. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to the deeply despised, the poor by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. So the Old Testament Scriptures not only reveal that Christ needed to die, the Old Testament Scriptures not only reveal that Christ must be raised again from the dead, the Old Testament Scriptures also foretell that the good news of the Messiah's suffering, death, and resurrection must be proclaimed. That message must be taken beyond the borders of Israel, beyond the city of Jerusalem, into all of the nations. Now, the testimony of Scripture here, let's go back to that point for a second. We'll come back to the Great Commission in a moment. But the testimony of Scripture here is crucial to proving the resurrection of Jesus. We have the eyewitness testimony. That's sufficient. But the fact that these things were announced centuries before, they were perfectly fulfilled, reinforces the plausibility and the validity to the resurrection. And that should give us, as followers of Christ, even greater confidence in God's Word. We sang it this morning. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. What more can He say than to you He has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? John chapter 20, verse 29, speaking to Thomas, when Thomas professes faith that Jesus is both Lord and God, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen Me? 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. We have not seen, yet we believe with ironclad certainty because Scripture lays the foundation for the truth of the resurrection. It withstands the storms of criticism and skepticism that violently blow against it. Those storms have been blowing relentlessly for 2,000 years, and yet the foundation of Scripture is as sturdy as it was on the day that it was written. Third proof, last one, quick, verses 46 to 49, the ongoing mission of Jesus through his disciples. We know that the resurrection is true, that it happened. He was raised from the dead because of the ongoing mission of the disciples. The scriptures, again, reveal three things about the ministry of the Messiah, his death, his resurrection, and the great commission in verses 46 and 47. Jesus died. Check. Jesus was raised. Check. The great commission has not yet been completed. In fact, at least at this point, has not yet officially even begun. So the Messiah's unfinished work here must continue in accordance with the scripture. Now, how is he going to do that? It's going to be through the disciples. We'll talk more about that part of it, what they do next week. But the ongoing work of the Great Commission, to talk about how this is a proof of the resurrection, the ongoing work of the Great Commission must indicate that the resurrection is true. Jesus had done what was necessary for the salvation of sinful people. He had died for their sins and he had been raised from the dead. And now that message needed to be proclaimed so that those sinful people for whom Christ died could know who he was, could repent of their sins, and so they could believe upon him for salvation. Without the resurrection of Jesus, the ongoing and necessary mission of gospel proclamation would not have continued. What would they have proclaimed? They would have proclaimed a dead Messiah. What hope is there in a dead Messiah? What, what hope could they offer if Christ had merely died for sin? Jesus would have been no different than the rest of us. So if Jesus had not been raised, it's hard to fathom how his mission would have continued. His mission would have died with him. But the disciples were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. And so Jesus here in verse 48 commissions them to bear witness to what they had seen and heard and touched. And they can do this because in verse 49, he supplies them with power and with endurance through the Holy Spirit. So that this work could not only begin and prosper, but so that it could go all the way to its fulfillment. This work is and must be accomplished. The Great Commission then is another apologetic argument for the resurrection. It's impossible, I think, to believe that the disciples would have undertaken this effort if Jesus had not commissioned them to it. I remember Chuck Colson, a testimony he gave one time. If you think about Watergate, um, Colson was very high up in Nixon's administration. Now he was wrapped up in Watergate, right? He said those guys were falling over left and right to make deals with prosecutors because they didn't want to go to prison for a lie. They were unwilling to risk damage, suffering to their own bodies, their own lives, their own families for things that they knew not to be true. But consider what the apostles endured. Ten of the eleven were martyred. 
The eleventh was sent to hard exile and died in great suffering. Why? Because they knew that this was true. How could they change their minds? How could they not stop preaching? They say in Acts, you know, you can tell us all you want to stop preaching the gospel, to stop preaching about this Christ. We're just simply going to tell you what we've seen and heard. We have to say this because this is the truth. So the Great Commission indicates to us today that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. And it's why it's so essential to the mission and ministry of the church today. We proclaim and bear witness to the truthfulness of the resurrection because we believe that Jesus is alive and that he has commanded us to continue his mission through the agency of the Holy Spirit. Now, in winding down his account of the gospel, John writes in John chapter 20, verse 31, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I think Luke would agree with that. I think all the gospel writers would agree with that. They've written their gospels for the purpose of faith, for the purpose of believing in Jesus Christ. And so they established for us that Jesus' resurrection from death was an historical event. It was so improbable. It was so unbelievable that the human authors of the gospels, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, belabored the point Probably as you're thinking of me, three weeks in a row now we're doing the resurrection. It's been a long sermon today, proving the resurrection. We're belaboring the point. Why are we doing that? Because it happened. That's the foundation upon which we stand. Again, I understand this can be maybe an academic thing to lay out these proofs of the resurrection, laying out the arguments for it. I pray that it's not been the case. But Luke and the other gospel writers relayed the facts about the resurrection so that we, even 2,000 years later, might stand firm in our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus' death and resurrection are events so extraordinary. They are events unique that it forces us to make a judgment call about him. Will we believe that Jesus really died and was raised back to life? Will we believe that Jesus really died and was raised back to life to forgive me of my sins and to give me eternal life. We proclaim the resurrection so that we might have life in his name. Because if Jesus is not raised, there is no life for us. If Jesus was not raised, there is no forgiveness. If Jesus was not raised, there is no hope. So if you're not a Christian this morning, you happen to come in, you were invited, somebody invited you today. Maybe you're wrestling in your own heart. Assurance of faith. My goal here is not to convince your mind through an academic exercise that Jesus is risen from the dead. My goal is to persuade your heart to believe in the one who was raised from the dead. If Christ has risen from the dead, and again, we've laid out some, I think, convincing arguments to affirm that he did, then you have to reckon with Jesus. This event is so extraordinary so climactic in human history that it forces us to make a decision about it. So if you're not a Christian, will you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Will you entrust yourself to him so that you may have life? If you want to talk more about that, please pull me aside after church and we'll talk some more. Love to talk about that with you this morning. Brothers and sisters, I pray that your heart this morning is leaping with joy in the resurrection of Jesus. Because he was raised, your sins 
are forgiven. You have a relationship with God that can never be broken. You have hope that this world and all its troubles and all its imperfections are passing away and that a new and perfect destiny that we call eternal life awaits us. I pray that your heart is flooded with God's peace. As the song says that no power of hell nor scheme of man can ever pluck you from your Father's hand. I pray that your heart is emboldened and filled with courage to share this message of life with people in your lives so that they too might believe in Christ and have life in His name. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to consider this doctrine that is so fundamental to our faith, so essential to our to our our position in Christ. We must affirm this. We must believe it. But Lord, it is it is life changing in every way possible. It's changed our lives. I pray that that process of transformation would continue. That we would walk, Lord, in in resurrection joy with resurrection peace, with resurrection hope and resurrection power to go and proclaim that resurrection message that has changed us to others who need to hear it and be changed themselves. God, would you use this passage, this message in our hearts to stir us up to greater faith, to deeper faithfulness to you. May you give us peace this morning because of what you have done in our lives through the resurrection of Jesus. We bless you, Lord, and thank you for this truth and for your word that tells us of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.